I'm Zibby Owens, and you're listening to the Webby-nominated podcast, Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Book of the Month Club is this week's sponsor. They're offering listeners uh, their first book for only $5 with code Zibby, Z-I-B-B-Y. Again, that's code Zibby for your first book for $5 to Book of the Month Club, which, by the way, is amazing. I subscribe every month. I get to pick from five of their favorite books. Um, most of the time, one of them is is by an author I've had on my podcast, and then it just arrives. I've given it as a gift. I adore it, and you will too. So think of it for gifts, and um, for sure, go on bookofthemonth.com and subscribe yourself. I'm here today with Susan Shapiro, who is the award-winning Manhattan writing professor and best-selling author of 12 books, including Five Men Who Broke My Heart and Lighting Up, How I Stopped, Smoking, Drinking, and Everything Else I Loved in Life Except Sex. She has written for the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, the Washington Post, and New York Magazine, among many other publications. Her latest book is The Byline Bible, Get Published in Five Weeks. She teaches writing classes like Instant Gratification Takes Too Long at NYU, the New School, and in private workshops. She currently lives in Greenwich Village, New York, with her husband, who is a screenwriter, and she was my teacher at the New School. So welcome to Susan Shapiro. Thanks so much for coming on Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. My pleasure. So this is a super special episode for me because I took Sue's class at the New School in, I think, 2004. And I was trying to write full-time for a little bit. And Sue's class was so amazing. It taught you how to get published in magazines and newspapers. And I swear to God, everything I've written since is because of you that's ever been published. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, I remember you got published during the class. You were one of the stars. Oh, thanks. It's exciting. <laughs> anyway, I've been following you ever since. Your whole career, your books, two of your books are some of my favorites, Five Men Who Broke My Heart and Lighting Up, which were so good. I'm like a memoir junkie. So Thank you. Well, so I read about you in New York Magazine, and I'm reading about this famous podcast with all these famous writers, and I was like, how come I never get to be on cool podcasts? And I'm like, Zibby, I know that name. <laughs> but then I Googled, and you had another name in my class. And yeah. I'm like, but then I, I did, and I'm like, oh my God, it's her. So I was like, yay. So this is so exciting. Oh, it's so exciting for me. Now you have a new book out, your 12th book called The Byline Bible Get Published in Five Weeks, which is basically like the essence of all your amazing classes. Exactly. So in the Byline Bible, just we'll start with that book. Great. You teach all of your hard-earned tricks of the trade. How have things changed since I took your class in 2004? Do you give the same advice? What are you, like the time-honored pitching traditions? Like what's changed the most? Obviously, the landscape has changed so much. Well, interestingly, what's the exact same is that everybody wants to get published that I know and that nobody teaches you how to do it. You know, so I, I did a MFA from NYU. I've taught at Columbia MFA program. I've taught at NYU, journalism school at MFA, the new school. You could pay $70,000 a year and you come out of it after two years not even knowing how to write a cover letter. So that's always what bothered me because as much as I love reading and studying with famous authors, I didn't just want to memorize their work or, you know, analyze story structure, narrative voice. I wanted to figure out a way in. So fascinatingly, it seems like Nobody really is teaching what people really want to know. So luckily, I've still, the classes not only fill up, I now do two and three and four sections of them. Why, and why I, do you think nobody wants to teach it? I don't know. I think there's a lot of reasons. I think that, you know, on one hand, you get the snobbiness of, you know, this is literature, mm -hmm. you know, so you don't want to talk about that. Number two, I think a lot of people don't know. I mean, if you really look at a lot of the administrators, for example, aren't published, you know, or the people that are heading the programs, or they don't make a lot of money. I, I do think you get people that really don't want to share their secrets, mm -hmm. you know, like they got an, it took them a long time 
time to get an agent or a book editor or a New York Times editor. So somehow they get it in their head that like I have to hoard this and I don't want to share it or a student would embarrass me or something to that effect. And pretty early on when I started, I got together with some friends for a writing group, people that I knew from NYU and I worked at The New Yorker as an editorial assistant. And we all band together and shared contacts. And within an amazingly short time, everybody was getting published and everybody was helping each other. And I kind of thought, well, my, my friends and colleagues that are hoarding their contacts aren't getting anywhere. And we were just exploding. So I think at that point, I just decided I'm not going to be a hoarder. I'm just going to share contacts because I thought that was good karma. And it has been. So people, so luckily the classes are still filling up. People still want to write. The great thing is that there's a million more websites and webzines and different verticals of newspapers and magazines. So there actually is probably more places that a beginner could just start out, which is fantastic. And I guess the downside would be in the past, maybe your average person that got published in my class could get $1,000, you know, when when editors were paying a dollar a word, and now it's closer to $100. You know, but there's still ways around that. The the paper magazines still sell. Do you, you still, know, still have a thing where if somebody gets a four figure, yeah, they still owe me dinner. They still owe you dinner. Yeah, and by the way, I, I owe now, you dinner. Yeah, I think. You owe me, actually, this will be this is better than dinner. <laughs> and interestingly, I have, I think it's 150 students who had book deals in the last 10 years. So that's there's really still a lot of money, and the the advances are between a thousand and five hundred thousand. So what do they have to give you if they get a five hundred thousand dollar book deal? You know, I'll tell you this interesting <laughs> phenomenon that started happening, which was so many of my young students were getting published, and what happens is some of my books are small press and paperback, and also I'm getting older, so I would call the Barnes and Noble in West Bloomfield, Michigan, where I live, or when I'd visit in L.A., and you know my first books were like. Random House, hardcovers, I was on the Today Show. But when you're doing a small book from a small press, they're not as interested. So they were like, well, can you combine with somebody? And then all of a sudden I would have a student that would have like a huge little brown hardcover that was in the Times or a New York Times bestseller or an award winner. So I so I wound up saying, hey, you want to do an event together? So hilariously now I do, I love doing book events with my students and they make me seem young and hip. And I could like tell them the ropes of how to get a lot of people, you know, or how to post and tweet about it and stuff like that. But then, you know, they're younger and they're, you know, a lot of times younger students, especially my undergrads, they get much more excited. Like I had a student named Aspen Matus who got a book deal when she was 21. Wow. And she became a spokesperson for Rain. Her book was A Girl in the Woods. And so, you know, so so a lot of my undergrads were excited to see her because they look at her and they're like, I want to do it at that age. So so actually, instead of dinner now, you have to do a book event with me if you get a book deal, So which has been a riot. Totally. I will. So much fun. Okay. It, okay. I, I've said All it right. here. We're doing an event together. For sure. Okay. I, don't, I also don't have to sell a book to have a book event with you. I would love to. But yeah. anyway, yes. Yeah, that would be great. Let's do it. <laughs> but yes, that's a good incentive. And I do. Um, I sit at my desk all day, so I do walking office hours at night. So you come downtown if you want to talk out a book with me. I have a lot of students that they bring their tape recorder and they just like throw out ideas for books. Really? And, yeah, a lot of books have come out of it. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah, I've been trying to mull around some ideas, but I haven't found the one thing yet, so I'll figure it out. By the way, you have a great, you have a great title and a platform already. Maybe that's, maybe it's called Moms Don't Have Time to Read. Well, that was how I started this podcast is that I wanted to write a book called Moms Don't Have Time to I Read. I think that's your book. But I don't know. I've heard parenting essay type books are not, are not that easy to sell at the moment, so. Oh, I think they are. I'll, I'll teach you how. Okay. You come downtown for a walk and I'll tell you how to do it. <laughs> Did you worry when you were writing this byline Bible that you were giving away all this? I mean, it's one thing to have people take your class and you tell them and you know them, but now you're disseminating this information to everyone and who wants to read it. I got worried for a minute. For a minute, I thought, is this is this smart? And also that, you know, will my editors have any room for me because I'm tell- telling right, right, everybody right. all the secrets? <laughs> but again, I found that 
the more that I share contacts and help people, the more the good karma comes back to me. So that was part of it. Also, there's an interesting thing which I do talk about in Byline Bible, which is I tell people what assignments they should do and what topics are good and what editors they should try and how they should submit and the word length and everything. But one of the things I say is, After you write a first draft, you need to get really tough criticism. Mm -hmm. And so you could go to a teacher, you could go to a colleague, you could hire a ghost editor. But the truth is, I'm like the toughest critic in the world. So luckily, I thought I was giving away too many of my secrets, but luckily I've got tons of people who not only want to hire me to help them you know, ghost edit their pieces. Like every time I just did an event in LA and I had these three fantastic women from Los Angeles who just moved here for five weeks to take my class. Oh my gosh. So interestingly, it wound up, again, it was like a good karma thing. And I'm sure you feel it because when you help people, you know, you promote other people's books. I always say to students, they they do everything right. You know, they cross the T's and dot the I's and they're doing everything right. They're not getting a book deal and they're not really being generous or, you know, and I and, and there is a karma thing. And, and a lot of editors will say, be a good literary citizen. Yes, I've been yeah, and help other people when you help other people or promote other work or even just posting and tweeting, writing that you admire. I think you accumulate good karma and people notice, you know, editors and agents, because there are so many, you know, selfish assholes in the, you know, in, in the business <laughs> that only care about themselves and that won't help anybody else. And editors and agents, I think, really notice if someone is being kind or helpful. You just want that. You want to work with that person. I mean, as long as you're not doing it for the karma, because then it like backfires. You know, what I mean? like you can't be kind and helpful. Right. Like it, it, well, you want to know something funny? I think you can, because I think, I think doing good is still doing good. So, I mean, okay, it can't be, your motive can't be, I hate this person's work, but I'm going to promote them to fake out everybody. Exactly. But if, but if you sincerely like something and you, you know, and maybe, I mean, people tease me because every day it's like, look at this brilliant piece by this student. And this is another brilliant piece by this student, you know, and so people tease me and, and I guess it does seem a little bit, you know, extreme, but if there's a sincerity attached and if you're trying, right. I, I think you can get That's away with it. That's what I was trying to say. You have to be sincere. And, and I think ha- there is, but you, think I think you that- could also, but you could be sincere and you could also say to yourself, I don't want to be selfish jerk. I want to promote other people's work too and just sort of try it. And you could stumble a little bit. It's still, I, I've never met a, I, I've never met a writer who doesn't, you know, who's not happy when somebody reposts or retweets their piece and just says, here's a great piece I loved, or right. here's a classmate's piece. So yeah. So I think it's a good thing to keep in mind, but it, t- it takes a while to figure out how to do it well, I think. It's a win-win. We'll yes. just leave it at that. Yes, <laughs> yes, yes, yes. And actually, by the way, the more you pr- promote other writing, the more it, helps you. So just for an example, I've had the honor of working with Dan Jones at Modern Love. I did two Modern Loves and I have about 40 students who've broken in there. And I always said for a minute go, if you like a piece, post it, tweet it, share it. And it turns out that luckily some of my students, but also some of the Modern Loves have been the most read pieces in the New York Times. And when that happens, then you get the New York Times behind personal essays, which is so cool. And now there's a podcast and now there's a TV show. And several of my students are in the new anthology. I just had them on. I had Daniel Jones on. Oh, how exciting! This episode last. I think I released it this week or last week. Anyway, very recently. Oh, I can't wait and for I the had, TV series. I had Deborah Kopakin, the author. Oh, she's amazing. Wrote one of the essays. She's amazing. She's amazing. My former student, um, Abby Share, is in the TV show. Okay. Uh, yeah, and then um, Liza Monroy is in the new anthology. And I think a few of my other students are in the new anthology. It's really it. I just finished it. So exciting. Like right there. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Liza's is the one. Her mom was a profiler, an FBI profiler. Yes. Who used that to was a good one. Dates. Wasn't that a great one? Yeah. And Abby and she knew was, right away. Yeah, that and, was amazing. Yeah. And Abby's was a beautiful one about how she lost her father, and then she there was a father that was kind of like a father figure, older man. Yes. Yeah, so that was a great one, too. Wow. Yeah. So how amazing does it feel to you, then, when you see the work, you're, like, out reading, and it's your students, 
Is that just like the best, like the super fulfilling? It's very exciting. And what happens is, you know, I've been doing this for so many years that when I first moved here, I moved here from Michigan. And, you know, the first piece I ever had in Cosmo, I think I ran 20 blocks in high heels to buy out every, you know, copy in the newsstand. And I will say at a certain point... I mean, even with books, it's my 12th book and they've all come out in paperback and hardcover and I'm in a lot of anthologies. So it's still exciting. But I will say there's something about helping someone with their debut clip. Like I had a several students this term, first piece ever in the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal and the Daily News, just my class Wednesday night. And that's exciting because then I re- then it's vicarious. It's a vicarious thrill. Wow. And also it makes me feel like all the years that I put towards this and there's been a lot of rejections and there's been a lot of banging my head against the wall and a lot of mistakes. So then I feel like it's all worth it. You know, because because that's what I tried to distill in Byline Bible and in my classes is like take all the mistakes and the stupid things that I did and sort of phrase it in a way so that don't do this, do this instead. I wish I would have done this instead. In fact, my first book, Five Minute Broke My Heart, came out when I was 43. And I have so many students in their 20s and 30s that are doing books. And it's, it's very exciting. And sometimes it's funny because I read their bios and I teach them how to do the bios. And they just have these gorgeous bios. And my bio was just so messy. I was just doing every <laughs> stupid kind of writing for every newspaper or magazine in the world. So it's kind of a thrill to, it's it's almost like um, like getting a do-over in a way. I feel like the don'ts in, in your book were particularly good, especially like the cover letters, because those are so important. And I think of you too whenever I'm trying to write somebody or that and like the timely leads, like how you have to hook everything right. to something topical. But in your list of don'ts, like don't be like, you know, now I can't think of anything funny, of course, off the top yeah, of my head. Like, don't start with, though I've never read your publication exactly. before. Or, yes. Though right. I've never been published in my entire life before. Oh, this yeah. one I hate, because I say to my students, you can use my name, but I always say, just say, my teacher Susan Shapiro gave me your name. And they always write the editors, Susan Shapiro told me I should send this to you because you pay a lot of money and I want to get a book deal and a bunch of her students. Stop it. Yes, I get get editors who call me and they're like, you know, would you please tell your student not to write this? Oh my Isn't that hilarious? Well, I, I make them show me their cover letters first before they go out. You shouldn't ask everyone to CC you from now on. I know. Right? Then, I mean, that's terrifying. I know, it's hilarious. Oh my gosh. Wow. I've definitely had some editors call me screaming. I bet. I mean, I don't know. That's but then weird. you know what? They call me screaming, and then the next day they're like, okay, now I'm buying this piece. So there you go. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just working with a student now who, um, this is actually a good karma story. I had an editor at the New York Times Magazine who bought my work not long ago, and he has a brother in California who's an actor, and I was doing some events out in L.A., and he said, invite him to your events, and so I helped him with the piece, and a bunch of great stuff just happened, and his piece is going to run in the New York Times style section, and I know he's going to get a book deal out of it. So it felt like a, that was a great karma thing. So I feel like you've taught so many people so many amazing things. What are some of the things that you've learned? And this is like a cliche-type question, but even in Byline Bible, you shared a lot of like amazing stories that happened with your students. Have you gotten any good tips even about your own writing, not just like life lessons, but like things that students do that you're like, oh, that's a good idea? I don't know. Well, I mean, the greatest thing about having young students is I want to be young and I want to be hip and I want to be woke and I want to be cool. So that's been amazing, you know, and I think that that informs my work a lot. And I do, you know, I have a lot of writing workshops and critique groups and, and, you know, question answer sessions. And yeah, I definitely incorporate what they say. And I have very, very important for me to, uh, what do they call them? Readers early readers mm-hmm. of my work. Yeah, so so I definitely have incorporated tons of important things that they've taught me. I mean, everything from, you know, sexual fluidity to using the right pronouns, you know, to pinpointing subtle racism or homophobia or xenophobia that I wasn't conscious of. 
Yeah, there's, you know, I think that sensitivity readers definitely have sensitivity readers now. And it um, makes, makes me feel younger. It makes me, um, I mean, it's, you know, and it's hilarious too, because, you know, I'll start out with a reference, like I'll say Mary and Rhoda, and they'll be, who? Who? Mm-hmm. And then I'll mention, you know, a sex in the city. And they're like, who? You know, and oh, then gosh. girls, girls is off too, you know, is yeah. already off the, you know, gossip girls off, regular girls yeah. is off. <laughs> so, so my young students are telling me like, oh, interestingly, one of my former students is now writing for bold type, Wendy Straker. And so that's like the hot new one that I'll use, which is about a bunch of young women in New York who are working for sort of like a Cosmo-like magazine or, you know, younger on TV, you know. Mm-hmm. Or so, so So interestingly, a lot of my students between their books and, um, by the way, the Me Too, there's a lot of things that I used to say that my students are like, you're not allowed to say that. You know, that's not woke. That's not cool. You can't do that. Like, just for an example— you know, I'm always trying to help as much as I can. And a lot of them are writing about really heavy stuff. And I'll say things that are offensive that I don't even need to be, you know, kind of like, you know, don't wear a mini skirt and drink seven, you know, have seven drinks and get stoned and then go to a guy's apartment by yourself. That's not, don't do that. And they're just like, you know, rapists cause rape. My skirt doesn't cause rape. Me going to their apartment doesn't cause rape. And I'm like, okay, sorry, you're right. But still don't get yeah. drunk and go to there. You know, but I still not a great idea. But I like hearing it. I like understanding, you know, and I so I feel like it's a way to stay young and to stay, you know, to understand what's going on, which then helps me be able to help them in terms of writing. And you have such an incredible body of work. I mean, the one thing that you're so good at in all of your essays and in your books are that, is that you have such great ideas. They're also clever and it makes you immediately interested versus like a lot of books which sound very similar maybe to other books. So for example, like take Five Men Who Broke My Heart. Start with that. Like, what was that about? How did you think of that? And then we'll go from there. <laughs> so Five Men Who Broke My Heart. Okay, I'll tell you the real story. Okay. Because writer, yes, I think a lot of okay, because a lot of writers, I think, are listening to this and a lot of my students. Okay, so I started writing a book about a friend of mine from The New Yorker whose father was a famous fiction writer, wound up married to my brother and moved to Michigan. And he's a doctor like my father. So I wrote a piece, I think, for a woman's magazine that did very well that got optioned about two women who switched lives. So I thought, okay, I'm going to write a book about this because everyone said, oh, it's so great and it's so funny. So instead of two writers, I made them two photographers. I called it Overexposed. And I tried to sell it. And everyone said, oh, it's, you're so funny. This is so great. And for seven years, nobody bought it. And at this point, I'm teaching and I'm helping other students get published publish books, and I can't publish books, so I'm like the wedding planner who can't get married. So I always say to my students, get tough criticism. I'm a tough critic. Ask for good criticism. So I have this great friend in Michigan who's a tough critic from the Detroit News, Laura. So I said, okay, so read this and tell me what's what's going on here. So she reads it and she says, okay, number one, you have no imagination whatsoever. Stop writing fiction. <laughs> she said, number two, sister-in-laws is a really boring subject. Write about sex. And she says, number three, you're ambivalent about this person. You write better about people you love. So I'm like, so I shouldn't keep sending it out. Put it away. And I went home swearing and thinking she's an idiot. She doesn't know what she's talking about, crying. Next day, I was reading High Fidelity by Nick Hornby. And he has this scene where he goes back and he remits his top five heartbreaks. And he, you know, when a man does it, they look at the woman and they say, oh, she's still hot. I'll still fuck her. And then the whole thing is over. And I thought, God, if a woman was remeeting her ex, there would be 20,000 pages of journal entries and there'd be all the therapy sessions and there'd be the gum wrapper from the first date. And I was in Michigan when this was happening. So I happened to go out to dinner with an old boyfriend. And so instead of just asking him questions, you know, vaguely, I started asking him what really happened between us. All of a sudden, I heard Laura's voice, and then the next day, I launched a book, Five Men Who Broke My Heart, about a 40-year-old journalist who goes back to meet her top five heartbreaks of all time to find out what really happened. 
So that book sold right away. And when people said, how long did it take to write? I said, well, I banged my head against the wall for 23 years, and then it took six <laughs> months. So that was, that was, you know, Random House and Today Show, and that was foreign rights and film rights. So that was very exciting. And then at the time, I was in addiction therapy. I was in therapy because my husband basically said to me, if you don't quit smoking and drinking and, and drugs, I'm going to divorce you. So I wound up in therapy, and I found this brilliant shrink who helped me quit everything and also helped me do the book deals and figure out how to be a good business person. So I was taking notes during it. So then I, the next book was lighting up how I stopped smoking, drinking, and everything else I loved in life except sex. So I found out I was good. I was much better at... Nonfiction, But I will say, even with my nonfiction, I have two really brilliant, amazing writing groups. So I'm bringing in every page of the writing group and then getting a tough critique and then writing it again. And again, I remember with Five Men It Broke My Heart when I first brought the first chapter in, which was about meeting an ex who had hurt my, you know, who had broken my heart, whatever. And I brought in this chapter and I wasn't sure what they were going to say. And there was this one really tough critic, Marilyn. And I remember she, after she heard it, she looked at me and she said, well... And I got really nervous. I thought, oh, she's going to kill it. And she said, you should have gotten old and bitter a long time ago because this rocks. <laughs> and I was like, hey. But anyway, so, I, I, so then I started figuring out nonfiction. Oh, and not only would I do the writing group, both writing groups, and then rewrite, rewrite, then I would hire a ghost editor. And there's a whole story about ghost editors, but then I would hire one of the editors I used was a, had been a double-day editor for 20 years. So then I hired her, and then she helped me. So it was, it was you know, so it still was a, it was a long process. But anyway, so I got really good at nonfiction, and then finally I went back taking what I learned with nonfiction, and I went back to that first book, Overexposed, and I finally rewrote it, and I found a great editor. And so from the time I started until the time it got published, it was 13 years. So instead of a book launch, it got a book mitzvah. Which is hilarious. Yeah. And yeah, so so it took a long time. I mean, because I was writing professionally really, I mean, all through college, but also like starting at age 20. And the and Five Men Have Broke My Heart came out at 43. So it really did take a while to figure out, you know, how to do it. But then you have all these other books, and you were so kind to bring me this stack, Most a lot of which I had, but some of which I didn't. So to, I'm going to just go through these quickly. Only as good as your word, writing lessons from my favorite literary gurus. That was an interesting one because I had done a couple books from Random House. So I wrote this book about just these brilliant, amazing people who really helped me career-wise. And I gave it to you know my editor there and my agent. And they said, no. And I said, why? And they said, it's not commercial. I'm like, why isn't it commercial? They said, because it's seven profiles of old people, three of them dead. So it turns out I went to a small press with that one. Interestingly, my students really liked that one because I tried to give as much information that like, you know, the brilliant things that they said to me. So for example, my cousin, Howard Fast, who is a best-selling novelist, at one point, I think I said to him that I was, that I had writer's block. And he said, don't be self-indulgent. Plumbers don't get plumber's block. Wake up in the morning, you get to work. And then he said to me, a page a day is a book a year. And I thought about that and that really helped me. So no matter what I do, I mean, one page is 250 words. So basically, no matter what else is going on in my life, I have to write 250 words every every day. I still do. And what's interesting is some of my books are short. They're only 200 pages. So it's actually more. So so that's a good way to look at it, that, that, you know, all you have to do is you have to write one page a day. So that's a good start. Wow. Can you tell me what you're working on now? Yeah, yeah, I'm working on a couple of projects now. Actually, and then I'll go back um, to the stack. Yeah, 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 sure. So right now, okay, so I did Byline Bible, and it did well, and it won awards and and sold well. So I mentioned in Byline Bible that I, I think there's a section where I have 27 short pieces that led students mm-hmm. to get to literary agents and books. So I guess after that, so many people read it and started calling me and said, okay, I like 
Byline Bible, I did what you said. I published a couple pieces. Editors and agents didn't call me. Now what do I do? Or they did call me. How do I get it? So now I'm working on a sequel to it that's called The Book Bible, How to Sell Your Manuscript No Matter What Genre Without Going Broke or Insane. And there's going to be 20 different chapters. And people don't really understand. Just for example, you say you want to write fiction. There's so many different categories Mm -hmm. because you could write Young adult, middle grade, new adult, Mm -hmm. romance, thrillers, mystery. Yeah, so each different chapter is going to be a different genre. Oh, perfect. So that I'm working on now. That's fun. And then— You should team up with Courtney Mom, who has a new book coming out about called After the Book Deal. Everything you need to know about what happens after. Oh, that's interesting. Yeah, that's a perfect—that would be a perfect combination because mine is how to get the book deal. Exactly. Right. The other book I'm working on is—okay, so in, I think it was 2005— As I mentioned, I wrote Lighting Up, How I Quit, Smoking, Drinking, and Everything Else I Loved in Life Except Sex. And that was with this brilliant addiction specialist. So I've actually been working on a sequel to that. Hmm. And I had this huge, horrible, unbelievably heartbreaking falling out with him. Oh, no. Yes, and it totally freaked me out because he was, for 15 years, he was really like my guru, and he helped me get clean and sober. And we had this huge, horrible falling out. And... He would not apologize. Like, he just did horrible things, and he wouldn't apologize. And I'm the type person that—I thought I was the type person that I will forgive anyone anything if they say I'm sorry, you know? Like, I had two roommates who slept with my boyfriend in college. They just said, hey, we were on Magic Mushrooms. Sorry, didn't mean to. Okay, I'll forgive you. Just explain it to me. I'm just a very forgiving person. He would not say I'm sorry. So it kind of made me crazy, and it led me on this journey to— ask a lot of the gurus in my life. And interestingly, they turned out to be religious because I knew I have a colleague who's a, an Orthodox rabbi who comes in from Israel who I, who actually helped him quit smoking with lighting up. And I have a, a reform rabbi and a, a chassid. And then I have a student who introduced me to her swami, a Hindu student and an imam. And I just started asking everyone their concept of forgiveness and specifically, how do you forgive someone who refuses to apologize? Because it's one thing if somebody, you know, and it's, it's, Yom Kippur, you know, if somebody repents and wants atonement, of course you should be open to that. But if somebody doesn't acknowledge that they did anything wrong, should you forgive them? Is it dangerous to forgive them? So I just, I basically went, and then I wound up asking very close friends and colleagues and students about, I wanted to hear stories of someone who hurt them that never apologized, like the worst story in your life. So anyway, it became a new memoir that I'm working on, which is called The Forgiveness Tour, How to Find the Perfect Apology. You have such great titles. Thank you. So I'm actually right this minute about to send that one out. And it took a long time. And there's really some very fascinating stories. Like there was someone that I met in Michigan, a man who forgave the drunk driver who killed his wife and two oh, children. Oh, my God. And he, in front of the court and publicly, he was able to forgive the person, ask for forgiveness. He was able to publicly forgive them in order to move on. And he came from like a humanistic Jewish. So I asked him, and I just had the most fascinating interview with him. And I'm like, teach me how you do it. And by the way, there was a Holocaust survivor. But I also had a student who writes brilliantly about how she was raped by her father and he died. But she never forgave her mother. Mm-hmm. for staying with him and not protecting her. And she's written some amazing things about that. So her struggle was, how do I forgive my mother? And so, and, she, and it was just fascinating. So I just wound up including all of these amazing stories about people who wound up having horrific things happen to them, but found ways of forgiving. 
And I sort of incorporate all that knowledge into, you know, how I want to deal with this scenario. And then, and then I got sort of, it, there's a great shocking ending to it. But anyway, so I just, just finished that. So I'm very excited about that. Wow. I can't wait to read that. Yeah. So that, that's very fun. How do you, what is your trick? Is there a trick to a good title? You have like, all your titles are great. This is Unhooked, How to Quit Anything, The Bosnia, well, this looks sad or something, but The Bosnia List, A Memoir of War, Exile and Return, What's Never Said, Overexposed, which you told me about, Speed Shrinking, Wait, say the concept of speed shrinking. Speed, just the, okay, the it. concept of speed shrinking was after I wrote Lighting Up, that particular therapist who helped me quit everything, he moved away. And I got really nervous because I thought I was going to relapse on alcohol, drugs, cigarettes. And uh, he was $200 a session. And we got this new insurance where if you went to someone in their network, it was $25 copay. So I was so gung-ho about finding a replacement that I thought for the price of one of him, I could see eight shrinks in eight days. And instead of speed dating, it's speed shrinking. And I mentioned that, oh, one of the shrinks happened to be in the office of my agent. And when I mentioned it's the agent, the agent said, write down speed shrinking. That's Susan Shapiroian. And I always say to my students, <laughs> write the thing that only you can write. If someone else can write, write it, let them. So that's how that started. And the funny story with that is I had this amazing publicist and we were talking about how can you publicize a first novel? And she said, you never get on TV for a first novel. It's really hard to publish and it's really hard to promote. And we were sitting at Knickerbockers, this great restaurant downtown, and it has eight booths. And I had this flash and I said to her, what about this idea? What about if I have all these shrink friends who've written books? What about if we put a shrink in each booth with their book and I get all my students and instead of speed dating, you go around and you have three minutes to tell them your problems and get advice. So I said, that's crazy, right? She's like, we're doing it. So we did it. It, it not only, it it was so amazing that I had to keep doing them because everybody wanted new ways of meeting shrinks, got on like seven TV shows, including the CBS morning show. But the most hilarious thing was I wrote a piece called Almost Famous for the Wrong Thing because I started like Jay Leno at one point called me. All these people wanted me in Japan, but but they didn't know it was a book. They just wanted to do speed shrinking. <laughs> but I'm like, I don't want to be a speed shrinking facilitator. They wanted to do it. They wanted to do a reality TV show where I'd be the reality TV star doing speed shrinking. But I want to write books. It's a book. Nobody knew it was a book, but it was very fun. And actually, it helped a lot of people get shrinks. And probably helped a lot of people with a lot of problems along the way. I think so. I think so. And it was really cool because I only would do the parties. We, we did a lot of them for charity at Housing Works, which goes to Age Charity. And what was cool is that I would only get therapists who I knew were brilliant and really smart. And it was a Jungian astrologer and a hypnotherapist and a, a sex therapist and someone that specialized in ADD and sleep disorder and psychopharmacologist and different language, people from different countries, different languages. So what was really exciting is a lot of my young students didn't know about therapy and they certainly wouldn't know how to go about getting a shrink. And by the way, how do you find a new shrink? Like you either have to get a recommendation or you have to waste a hundred or $200 doing an intake session. And you walk in and you say, oh, he looks like my grandfather. I don't want to talk about oral sex with someone that looks like my grandfather. Forget it. So it was really cool. So I'd have all these young, interesting, weird, different ages, different backgrounds, shrinks, and they'd give out their cards and they'd give out their books. And so a lot of people wound up trying them out and doing therapy, which is so cool. So I feel like there was good karma in that too. And therapy really saved my life because I adore my family, but I'm from, I felt that it was a very repressed suburban environment where you're never supposed to say anything bad about yourself or your family or the Cossacks will come and get you. <laughs> so of course I fell in love with like the confessional poets who say terrible things about themselves and their family all the time. But so therapy really saved my life in so many ways. So I love being able to pass that on. Wow. 
I mean, what a gift. That's like a true gift. You know what? Sometimes it really is because sometimes someone will remind me and I don't, I don't even remember that the therapist is the one who helped them get married or helped them have a kid or helped them break through their success blocks or get rid of drug addictions and stuff. So that's exciting. It should be like a whole field, match, like shrink matchmaking. I, I think you should do this as a side business. Well, the, the speed shrinking was really it. cool. But I, I, if I tell you once a month, I still get, and the shrinks loved it because there's really no way to promote a shrink business that's fun. And this would be on TV and it would be on radio. And, you know, it was it was really exciting. So I still get people that want me to do it. Once in a while, I could do it for charity, for fun. But the problem with it is it only works if the shrinks are great. Mm-hmm. So people all over the country and all over the world, like in Japan, they want me to come facilitate it. But you can't interview a shrink for five minutes and right. know that they're smart or not. And if you're giving bad advice, even if you're only giving it in three minutes, it's still bad advice. True. So unfortunately, the only places I've been able to do it are Michigan, New York City, and L.A. because those are the only places <laughs> I know enough smart therapists. Wait, going back for two seconds, how did it come up with a catchy, clever title for a book or a magazine? Speed drinking? No, no. How to come up with any, how do you come up with your clever titles or do they just come to you? Because there's well, something unique kind of about thank all you. your titles. Thank you. It. Well, I study poetry. So definitely, you know, I like alliterations and I like, you know, interesting phrases, phraseology, but also really my writing group is extremely helpful. And quite often what I find is that I write about something and either something like a phrase in the middle works, or sometimes I've found that the headline that the the editor for a newspaper or magazine writes helps. So I I fixed up 30 couples. And at one point I was writing, I wrote a piece about it for the forward and the editor wrote Secrets of a Fix-Up Fanatic. And I thought, oh, that's fun. So I wound up doing that. And at the time I had fixed up my editor with the guy that she married. So she got very interested in that topic. So, and it, with Bosnia List, so I was working, it was actually my physical therapist, Kenan, was, was the, um, was a, Muslim survivor of the Bosnian genocide when he moved and it happened when he was 12 years old. And when we, when we were working on the book together, you know, physical therapy exercises are so boring and I'm a journalist. So I kept asking <laughs> him really like driving him crazy, asking him questions. And actually when I tried to get him to write about it, I remember I said that the first assignment I give my students is write three double space type pages on your most humiliating secret. So he laughed at me and he said, you Americans, why the hell would anyone do that? And I said, <laughs> because my students want to get in the New York Times and do book deals and because it's healing. And he was like, your students get in the New York Times and do book deals. And I said, yes. And I sent him some of the pieces. But so when he was writing the story, so what's the most humiliating secret from being a war survivor? And and what he never told anybody was that he had a list that he kept of people who sabotaged and screwed up his family and, and betrayed him. So he had friends and he had a karate coach and he had a teacher who held a gun to his head. And he had kept a list, even though he was 12 years old, because at some point he wanted to go back and confront them about what they did to him. So we called it the Bosnia list. And that was in the first piece he wrote. And I thought, that's a great title. Wow. Yeah. So that became, so that was, that was really cool. So that was a, um, what's, what's, uh, okay. So the beautiful story about that, which I love. So we did the book together. English wasn't his first language and he still works full time as a, physical therapist, so he needed help writing it. So he wrote it. And the the best story of that was he would tell me the story and sometimes I would write it in, uh, you know, more of a poetic way. So he was telling me why it sucks to be exiled when you're 12, because his older brother had, you know, gone to bars and been to Sarajevo, the capital, and had all these girlfriends and driven a car. And he'd never done that because he was 12 years old. So when I was writing it, the way I interpreted it is I wrote a line said, and I never kissed a girl from home. And he was embarrassed by that. And he wanted to take it out. I'm like, no, that's a great line. You have to leave it in there. And then there's a certain place I take author photos on my roof where you 
could see the whole skyline. So I made him take this great picture on the roof. I think he was very cute and 30 at the time. So the book comes out, you know, I never kissed a girl from home and he was single um, at the time. So every woman from the Balkans in the world was sending him like naked photos and, (laughs) you know, trying to find him on social media and all the grandmas and the aunts and the moms were saying, you should marry my daughter. You should marry my cousin. You should marry my niece. So the sweetest one he got was just a very unobtrusive little note without a picture that just said, your book meant so much to me. And I lost my father around the time you lost your mother. Thank you for what you did for my people. So he looks her up and she's gorgeous and single and they're now married. No. Yes. And what was really cool is he wound up in Sarajevo, taking her family out for drinks, driving and proposing. So what I said to him, which was so cool, was I said to him, so by being willing to go back to your past, you found your future. So that was a great story. But so I find that that happens a lot, you know, because it's, I am very psychologically oriented. So I do think that, you know, write about your most humiliating secrets. It sounds like it's a fun assignment, but it's also heavy. And it's also about, I think it's Arthur Miller who says the only thing worth writing about is the unspeakable. So it's like really digging deep and finding the things that you're afraid of and not, you know, and, and sort of putting it out there, you know, and, and so I think it does great, it, you know, so great things happen. And, and I always say to my students that writing is a way to take the worst, your worst experiences and turn it into the most beautiful. That's so nice. Yeah. So that happens. Wow. Well, thank you so much. I feel like we're out of time. I could talk to you all day and I'm so glad we're back in touch. So yeah, this is so much fun. Um, but thank, thank you. you. Yeah. And thanks for, um, yeah. And tell me what you think of Byline Bible. If there's anything else that I missed that I should no, go back and No, it was amazing. I loved it. It was so comprehensive. It was fantastic. And the examples were great too. Propping up your students again. Fantastic. Yeah. Great job. Cool. All right. Thank, thank you. you. This episode has been sponsored by Book of the Month Club, bookofthemonth.com. Enter code ZIBBY to get your first book for $5. Thanks for listening to Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. You can follow me on Instagram at Moms Don't Have Time to Read Books. Thanks so much to Steve and Ryan at Texture Sound for the sound editing. And thank you to Morning Moon Productions for providing this fantastic intro and outro music. Thanks for listening. You could always email me at zibby at zibbyowens.com. 